And uh, I invite you this morning to turn to Luke chapter 17 as you're seated. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Luke chapter 17. As you turn to Luke 17, uh, we're going to transition in our sermon series from thinking about quietness in prayer to thinking about prayer more broadly. And this morning, I want us to think about how valuable regular prayers of thanksgiving are for us. Uh, so to help us do that, I'd like you to take a moment and think back to yesterday, or maybe the day before, maybe the day before. I'm going to help you do that. Uh, what time did you get up yesterday? Uh, what did you eat for breakfast? Were you hurried? Were you leisurely? Were you happy? Were you grumpy? Uh, and then where did you go after breakfast? Did you go to work? Family trip? Did you play a sport? Did you do your chores? Yeah. Were you happy? Were you sad? Were you worried? We have the whole gamut here today. This is great. So what about lunch? Kids, did you eat lunch yesterday? Did you like it? Now, don't answer this question with a story. Answer this in your head. What happened after lunch? Did you kind of, did you fight with your siblings? Don't answer that out loud. <laughs> did you decide what to do for the rest of your day? And then finally, as the day was winding down, what happened to you then? Did you hang out as a family? Did you fight bedtime? Or did you embrace it like a holy, righteous person? Uh, did you read before bed? Did you spend time with your friends, with your spouse, were you by yourself? Okay, so now that you have your day back in your mind, let me ask you this question. Where did you notice Jesus yesterday? Now, all of us, I hope, believe that Jesus was present with us at every moment of yesterday. But as we think back on yesterday, I'm betting that in the moment, most of us did not notice his presence very often. What I want us to think about this morning from our passage in Luke 17 is how learning to give thanks regularly in prayer teaches us to notice Jesus and the way that he is present with us in his goodness and in his grace every day. Uh, now, before I begin, I should tell you that Luke 17, 11 through 19 is what scholars call a Janus passage because it, it gets its meaning by facing backwards and by facing forwards in the story. Uh, or if you don't like Janus, uh, you can think of our sanctuary doors. They swing all the way out into the foyer, and they swing all the way into the sanctuary. Uh, Luke 17, 11 through 19, is, is a lot like our sanctuary doors. It swings all the way into worship, where we learn humble gratitude at Jesus' presence in his goodness. And it swings all the way out into the world, where we learn to see the presence of God's goodness and his kingdom in our lives. And as those who want to grow in this skill, walking into worship and gratitude and walking out into the world in gratitude, able to see Jesus in his goodness, uh, let's read our passage this morning. The points are on the wall, Luke 17, 11 to 19. Let's hear God's word together. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. 
And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we very much want to learn how to return and give you praise and thanks so that we can see you more and more clearly in our daily life. And Father, we want this. We know that this passage is designed to help us do that. But Lord, we know that unless your spirit blesses it to us, that it will not have that effect in our hearts that we desire. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would give us now ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words in my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so our passage here marks a transition in Jesus' ministry up to this point. From chapter 15 until now, Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees and the scribes about the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom that you and I live in. It's the kingdom that we pray for, thy kingdom come. And it's the kingdom that we strive to build by God's grace in our lives together in this world. And Jesus begins these sermons on the kingdom of God to the scribes and the Pharisees with the very famous parable of the lost sheep, how a man who was missing one sheep left 99 others to go find him. And the parable of the lost coin, how a woman who lost one silver coin spent an entire day overturning her whole house until she found it. And Jesus says that is what the kingdom of God is like. It's a kingdom where God's people spend their time and energy seeking repentance and then rejoice deeply when it happens. And then Jesus gives uh, lots of different examples of how we need to practically reveal that. And here's a little mini-sermon. Uh, we welcome back prodigals, which is hard. We use our money for Jesus and his kingdom, which is hard. We use our power to preserve justice and pursue it, which is hard. Uh, we forgive. Even when they come to us seven times a day and say, I repent, we tell them seven times a day, I forgive you, because as servants of our king, we are called to forgive 70 times seven. Uh, that's a lot. It's so much that the apostles say to Jesus in 17, chapter 17, verse 5, increase our faith. And then Jesus responds with the encouragement that even if they only have a little faith, the faith of a mustard seed, if they try to practice that, Jesus will bless it and it will grow, and the kingdom of God will grow in their life and grow in the lives of those around them and out into the world. You all are familiar with that, right? But then right before our passage, Jesus ends this sermon with something kind of like a warning in verse 10. This is right before our passage. He says, so you also, this is verse 10 of, of chapter 17, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. So just before Jesus goes to Jerusalem and heals these 10 lepers, he finishes his sermon about life in the kingdom and 
life sacrificing for the kingdom by reminding us that we should not think to ourselves when we've done what God has called us to do, you know, God really should be grateful for my service. He really does kind of owe me one. See, Jesus knows that if I actually spend time seeking the lost, putting myself out there in awkward situations, talking about Jesus, if I actually work hard to put aside my feelings of hurt and betrayal and welcome back my prodigal brothers and sisters into equal standing in the kingdom of God, if I actually devote my money to Jesus' kingdom and use my power such as I have to pursue justice for others, and if I forgive over and over and over and over and over and over again, I will be tempted to think that my obedience has put God in my debt. I'll be tempted to think that my good deeds, my, my faithfulness, my excellence, means that I deserve some kind of blessing. It would be very much like a friend of mine, and this is not a story about my kids that I'm hiding behind someone else. This is actually a story about a friend of mine who none of you know, who told me recently that his son uh, came to him. He's sitting on the couch and he goes, Dad, I'm like what? You should give me a dollar. Why should I give you a dollar? I forgave my sister. Why, do you, why should I give you a dollar for that? Because it's hard. We can act like we are owed by God a gift for doing things that are hard that he's called us to do. I mean, how easy is it to fall to that temptation, especially when that obedience is, as my friend's son said, hard. It's sacrificial especially when we have to endure suffering for the kingdom. So you don't need to look at those sacrifices and that obedience as somehow earning the eventual blessing of Jesus in our life. And that is one way to understand what happened to at least some of these 10 lepers in our passage. So our passage begins with Jesus walking between Galilee and Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's doing this, he enters into a village somewhere on the road. And we're told in verse 12 that he's met by 10 lepers, verse 12, who stood at a distance, lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now here we see 10 men obeying Jesus' law. So according to the Old Testament, if you were leprous, you had to separate yourself from those who were not leprous. And you had to stay at a distance from non-leprous people until you were no longer leprous. That kind of obedience is not easy, right? Just think about how much we all hate quarantining with COVID. This is essentially that. That kind of obedience is not easy, just like doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. Day after day is not easy. It's not easy always to obey the commands of Christ. So in terms of leprosy, it's hard to stay away from your family and friends. It's hard to stay away from work, especially when you really like it or you really need it in order to survive. It's hard to stay away from birthday parties. And depending on the kind of leprosy that they had, it's really hard not to be hugged or touched even by other lepers. And it's especially hard when you don't know how long this season of leprosy will last. But still, you obey. You obey Jesus. You sacrifice for the kingdom that Jesus is building and you live in the way he has called you to live. And then in the middle of that sacrificial obedience, 
these 10 men, they see Jesus. And they know from all the earlier encounters that Jesus has had with people in this region that he has the power to overcome these forces of death. And so they, they pray to him. To lift up your voice is a common way in Scripture to talk about prayer. And they lifted up their voice to heaven. They lifted up their voice to God. And so they pray to Jesus. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, which is, again, a common form of prayer to God for help. And Jesus does. He says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they go, they discover that they are healed. But nine of them go on their way without any gratitude. They don't come back. They don't give praise. Why? Well, context tells us one reason that we need to consider, which is maybe these nine men saw their healing not as a gift, but as a deserved payment for obedience. Dad, you should give me a dollar. Forgiving my sister was hard. Why would you say thank you for getting what you deserve? My friends, that kind of perspective on our relationship with God, where we look at God as something like a cosmic bank, where I deposit my obedience so that I can withdraw blessing, that creates all kinds of problems, the most basic of which is ingratitude. And in that light, have you ever been around an ungrateful person? Or have you ever been able to pay attention to yourself when you're ungrateful? Uh, people who view the goodness that is in the world not as God's gift given daily with refreshed grace out of love, but as a due for their excellence and obedience. They're angry, right? Like, why isn't th aren't things the way I want them to be? Why can't everything be just right? They're proud. Doesn't everyone see how good I am? Like, I deserve better than this. They're rude. Uh, I don't care that I'm making you upset at being upset around you and yelling at you and taking my frustration at you. Who are you to get mad at me? And they're cold-hearted. Listen, I don't care that you're in pain. Can't you see I'm in pain? They're selfish. You should give me what you have so I feel better. And they're unkind. Why would I share with you? You don't deserve this. I deserve this. They're demanding. Mine. Give it to me right now. And they're impatient. I will not wait. Of course, it sounds like everybody else. It never sounds like us, right? That's how I live when I'm ungrateful. When I'm viewing the good things of, of life, my life and the world, the blessings of the world as prizes that have been purchased by my good deeds, and not as daily renewed gifts from my Heavenly Father's good and generous hands. I am all of those things. Which is why it's interesting to note that Luke uses one of the Bible's words for repentance to describe the Samaritan who came back. He returned to Jesus. One way of thinking about repentance is you change your mind. Another way of repent thinking about repentance is you come back. You return. He returned to Jesus. See, my friends, maybe this man suffered from the same feeling of being owed help, but when he finally got help, he turned his vision from the gift to the giver by turning around and going back to Jesus. And the idea here is surely that we need to learn to turn from the gift to the giver with gratitude 
with a heart that has learned that the good things we get from God are not there because we have pulled them down from heaven with our obedience or our excellence. They are not in our lives because we are owed them. They are here because, and this is so good, Jesus loves us. Because Jesus is so good that he delights to give good things to his children. Because he finds joy in giving good gifts to us. And therefore, um, like this man, we need to repent of ever seeing them as wages, wages for services rendered. We need to learn to see them as daily refreshed graces, gifts given from our Heavenly Father to His children, given out of His loving generosity and kindness. That's one way to understand why the nine didn't return and the one did. And there's another. Now, because this passage swings both ways, it's a Janus passage, it's like our, our sanctuary doors that goes in and out, we don't choose between them. Uh, we need them both. Uh, because both show up in our lives. Uh, so here's the other reason. Maybe the nine, or at least some of them, didn't return because they were ungrateful. Some of them may not have returned because they had become desensitized to Jesus's goodness. They become desensitized to Jesus's goodness. And here, here's what I mean, or I should say to get at what I mean. I have to remind you what I told you last year, and all of you remember who were here in my sermons from last year. No, you don't. I don't remember what I preached last Sunday, so no judgment. Uh, but last year I did say that the word we translate as leprosy is not the skin disease we call today Hansen's disease. It is not. The word we translate as leprosy describes things like mold on walls and clothing and pots and pans, none of which are Hansen's disease. It also describes things like the beginnings of male pattern baldness. Dandruff might be in there. There's a debate among biblical scholars. Skin rashes, oozing cuts, bleeding. It describes lots and lots of different kinds of things. And if you were here when we talked about this last year, I made the point that leprosy was something that people would experience multiple times in their life. Sometimes they would experience it just for a few days. Sometimes it would be for much longer. Uh, sometimes you get over one form of leprosy, but then you get a different form of leprosy. And you would be like the man in our passage last week who was full of leprosy. He just, his life was just full of being leprous. So all of that to say, when Jesus encounters these 10 men, they are not dressed in rags with their skin falling off. They're dressed in normal clothing with most likely different kinds of leprosy among them. And most likely they've been here before. Again, they're not like the man we met in Luke 5 who lived in this perpetually leprous state who was full of leprosy, who had spent his life in quarantine. And so these guys who've been in and out of it before, who've experienced this before, they see Jesus and they think, Hey, like, wouldn't it be great to just be done with it this time? Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's not necessarily a prayer that like, hey, cure my cancer. 
Jesus, have mercy on us. It could be also a prayer of Jesus, have mercy on us. Can I please just find a parking spot this time so I can make this trip be fast so that we don't have to listen to the crying baby in the car? Please, Jesus, can you have mercy on me? There's different kinds of prayer for mercy in the Christian's life. And so I can hear them saying, like, Jesus, I was just here last Tuesday. And you know what? Like six months ago, I was here again for a different thing, and I missed my son's birthday party. Like, would you please... Just get us out of this predicament so that we can go live our lives again. I want to go hang out with my daughter. I want to be with my wife. I want to be with my brother, my sister, my parents. And then when Jesus tells them to go show themselves to the priests in verse 14, uh, he, he's telling them to go do the thing that they've done multiple times before. That's how you got out of leprosy, uh, if and when it went away. Uh, you went to the priest who would declare you to be clean, and then you go through that beautiful re-welcoming ceremony that we talked about last year with the doves and the incense and all that really beautiful stuff. But I just want you to note that Jesus doesn't heal them in front of them. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, wrong pipe. I just want to note Jesus doesn't heal them in front of him. He sends them out to do the thing that they've done multiple times before, and it's on their way they get healed. And maybe that's happened multiple times before too. You can imagine a situation where, you know, you're looking at a skin rash. It's going to be okay to think about skin rashes. You're looking at a skin rash, and you're like, you know what? It's getting better. It's about a two-day walk to Jerusalem. I bet you if I left today, it'll be better by the time I got there. Then I could show to the priest, I could be clean, and I could go home sooner. So I'll just leave now before it's you know, totally better. So I'll, all of that to say, this is not necessarily a huge thing Jesus has done for them. Most likely, they were going to get out of this predicament eventually. So even though Jesus healed them and kind of sped the process up for them, which he did, it's not this extraordinary thing necessarily like a walking on water, dividing bread and feeding 5,000 people, turning water into wine. Excuse me. So now connect that idea, that concept, with what immediately follows in our passage. This is the looking forward part. In verse 20, the next verse, we read this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And all that Jesus means here is that the kingdom of God does not come with flashy, stark sort of ways that completely disrupt our understanding of everything. Uh, it's not an army marching across the road. It's not a caravan of money trucks. It's not a spectacle. I mean, even when people come to Christ for the first time and experience this sort of inward, cataclysmic, wonderful, transformative moment, they still got to go to work on Sunday, or not on Sunday. Who works on Sunday? They got to work on Monday. You know, they still have to repair the broken relationships. They're still them. They're just saved. It's not this transformative, life-altering, the world's been conquered, everything is different kind of way. It's not a spectacle. And do you know what Jesus says? Actually, the kingdom of God is already here. It's in the midst of you, he says. And he says that not just because he's standing there, but because Jesus, by his Spirit, is at work already among them to build his kingdom. 
And in that comment, he's telling the Pharisees, guys, you're missing what God is already doing. You're looking for something spectacular to arrive, and you're missing what's already here in the midst of you. But it's here in this normal, everydayness of life. It's here in the lost being found. It's here in the return of the prodigal. It's in the forgiveness of sins. It's in people using their money to build God's kingdom. It's in the Samaritan returning to Jesus to say thank you from delivering me once again from leprosy. My friends, the context tells us that one of the reasons the nine didn't return is because they had become, I think, desensitized to Jesus's goodness. They were looking for his goodness to come in flashy, explosive ways, and they missed it in the mundane, ordinary, in-the-midst-of-us life. You see, they simply expected the season to end, and even though it ended more quickly than they would have normally expected, it still ended the way they expected. And in that way, they are like us. When we say to each other, like, hey, this too shall pass. And then when it passes, we don't tell Jesus thank you. Or when we wake up in the morning as expected, we don't tell Jesus thank you. I mean, after all, it's just what happens right? Like we got here safely. No one had a car accident. It's just what happens. We're here. It's just what happens. We become desensitized to Jesus's goodness. And when that happens, like the Pharisees, and like my example at the beginning of a sermon where we kind of go through our day, which is probably kind of like most Saturdays or most Fridays or whatever day you thought of, we end up not noticing the presence of Jesus in our everyday life. And so that brings me quickly to this man Uh, who in verse 15, I'm going to read it again, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. So this man turns to Jesus, and he recognizes that the appropriate and best response to this action is praise, because it's a gift from God. It's a common gift, but it's still a gift. Now notice at the end, after he comes back and tells Jesus, thank you, Jesus says that he's you know, shocked that it was only one guy who came back and that it was a Samaritan of that. But notice what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now what's interesting about that is the faith Jesus is talking about is clearly his turning back to give praise and thanks to him for what he, he, he did for him. Uh, But since the man was already well before he turned back, right, that's why he came back to Jesus. He was already healed. It raises this question, what has just been made well? Is Jesus looking all the way back to the healing of this man's body, or is he talking about something else? And here I think he's talking about something else. I don't think that Jesus is just saying, hey, the faith that moved you, to return and give thanks, that is what healed your body. And I sort of looked down the corridors of time and I responded to the faith that you would have and healed you. You'll find that in some commentaries and that's kind of special pleading. You don't need to listen to that part, I don't think. No, I think Jesus, what he's really saying is, and I think he's really saying this in the first instance, the faith that moved you to return and give thanks has made your heart and soul well. It helped you draw close to me. It helped you grow in humility. It helped you see my presence just a little more clearly in your everyday life, to see the kingdom of God arrive 
in the midst of your day-to-day life through the work of the Holy Spirit giving good gifts to his people. Uh, Because this act of faith is not desensitized to my everyday goodness. And it doesn't act like it deserves that goodness. You know, this faith receives these things as gifts from the Heavenly Father. And in so doing, makes the heart well. Brings joy and peace. And so then if you take that and read it backwards again, because again, this passage goes both ways. You're supposed to read it backwards and forwards. Uh, How does this mustard seed of faith that this man had that seeks the lost and forgives sinners over and over again, how does it... How does that stay humble in us? and How does it pay attention to Jesus in our lives? Well, it does it in part, as we see in our passage, by praying prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, so we've gone through all of that so that I can say this. Um, we need to include not only silence in our prayers, as we've been seeing the Bible call us to, we also need to include times of thanksgiving in our prayers. Now, like with silence, I think it takes some learning about how to do this. Uh, So here's what I I recommend, and I'm going to tell you who I'm stealing this from uh, because she's in glory now and does not care. Um, I'm recommending that we all try a practice that I learned from Carol, something that she did for most of her life, if not all of her life, which was literally count her blessings. I know that sounds odd to some of us, but I'm not saying to count them out loud in public. Um... But I know most days, Carol would sit down with a piece of paper until she wasn't able to write anymore, and then she just did it in her mind. And she'd do like, number one, Jesus. Number two, family. Number three, church. Number four, the guy at the supermarket that helped me get my groceries in my trunk. And she would go through and she would number her blessings. And as she remembered them, they would become her prayer of thanksgiving. I remember talking to her about this. She said before, that's what she would start off when she'd pray her prayers at the end of the day, she would always begin that way by enumerating the multiple different ways that Jesus had been good to her. And I think that's a great place for us to start. But I'm also going to say this, as someone who has taken her advice, uh, let me go a little further because um, here's what happened to me when I started doing this. The first day, I had a pencil and paper because I wanted to be like Carol. I wrote down a few things. I didn't write down as much as I thought I should write down, but I wrote down a few things. Day two, I wrote down a ton of stuff and got tired of writing and kind of stopped. Day three, I started again, but it slowed down. And then day four, I kind of just gave up. Um, So here is how I've adapted Carol's method to my own life. You can adapt it however you want, but it, it bears spiritual fruit. So after I get to the too many to count stage where I'm just writing things down and and getting kind of bored, I stop adding to the list. And uh, the next day, I go back, and I just pick a few things from it, and I tell Jesus why these are blessings. So I don't just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I say, you know, thank you for this person because they do these things for me, and it's incredibly kind of you to put them in my life, and here's how they help me, and here's why I'm glad. And what I found is after I do that, my prayers begins to shift to not only thinking about other things that I'm thankful for, but also to start asking God to take some of these blessings and to use them to help other people. And then I've also learned this. Sometimes as I start praying that God would take a particular blessing that he's given me and shift it to someone else, I start realizing 
God already has. And so what this practice has done for me is three things. It's increased my gratitude for God's gifts because I remember that I don't have good things because I'm good enough. I have good things because God is good, because he loves me, because he loves my family, because he loves my church, and he just likes giving good gifts, and he's going to keep doing it until he returns, and we have the perfect, unending gift of life with him in the new heavens and the earth forever. That is an increase in humility, to learn God's goodness. It's helped me remain sensitive to Jesus' goodness in my ordinary, every day-to-day life, as I've also learned to see, like, hey, this good thing happened because Jesus is present with me. Praise God. Thanks, Lord. Like, this was great. And then finally, it's also helped me to discern the presence of Jesus, uh, not only in my life, but in other people's lives. To see the way the kingdom of God comes in the midst of the ordinary everydayness of our life together. To see that the Lord is at work. He's already there. Being good. Showing his grace. My friends, if we want to grow in humility and learn to see the presence of the Lord in our midst, then one way to do this, our passage teaches us, as I hope I've shown well enough, is to include prayers of thanksgiving in our prayers, to take the good things that Jesus has given to us back to him in prayer and just say thank you. And Jesus tells us that as we do that, our act of faith will make us well. We will deepen in humility. We will learn just how near Jesus is to all of us and how powerfully he is working in our lives and in the world. We will, as we rehash our days, as we do sometimes, be able to say, this happened, and I saw Jesus here, and this happened, and I saw Jesus here, and then I met this person. I could see Jesus working in their life, and that is what I think we would all like, to see the presence of Christ in our day-to-day walk with us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, you are good and your love endures forever. Uh, Your faithfulness continues unfailingly through all generations. And so please help us to see your goodness and your faithfulness and your love endure uh, more clearly in our day-to-day lives. Uh, And as we uh, learn this, help us to give thanks to you. And Lord, as we give thanks to you, help us to see you more clearly uh, so that we would understand the way in which you are, you are with us at work in our lives and in the world to bring the good gifts of Christ and his grace and his redemption to bear in our lives. Now, Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.